because uh, the proclamation of the word, proclamation of the gospel, the good news, is a corporate act that we do together. We are all hearing what God is saying to us. I pray the Lord be with you. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that our ears will be open to hear a word of good news uh, that, that, that cuts to the heart today. Uh, Lord, we open ourselves to you. Help us to, to pay attention to what you're saying and give us grace to respond in faith and obedience, Lord, so that your grace can continue to work in our lives, transforming us as a community into the family of God, the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, uh, how many of you know what I'm saying if I say that I support Liverpool Football Club? Does anybody have any idea what's going on there? Okay. A few of you, yeah? Not that many. Okay, all right. Thanks, Krista. Um, well, Liverpool Football Club is a soccer team in uh, American talk. Um, and uh, I, I started watching soccer. It's English soccer, so there's a league in England called the English Premier League. I started watching this uh, league a few years ago. And uh, when I started watching, I was just interested in the sport. It never, soccer never used to interest me, but uh, eventually it sort of became interesting. I, thought, I started realizing what was going on. I understood the rules. I understood some of the strategy. And I thought, this is fun. I'll, I'll, I'll start watching this game. But it's not, it's not that fun to watch sports unless you have a team, right? There's a team that you're rooting for. There's somebody that, that, you're, that you're pulling for. There's a team that you support against the other teams. And so I did some research. Uh, I asked some friends. I said, who should I... Who should I root for? Who should I be a fan of? What team should I uh, be a supporter of? And uh, eventually I decided on Liverpool. And, and it's kind of interesting. I mean, I'm not from Liverpool. I have no ancestors in Liverpool. I, you know, the Beatles came from Liverpool, and I like music. But, you know, there's no, re there's no real rhyme or reason to it. It just felt like a team that was like, that's me. People like me are into Liverpool, right? So there were some teams I knew were not going to be the right teams, right? So Manchester United, for example... Is not that they were not going to be my team. They're kind of like they're, they're like the Yankees of the English Premier League, right? So they win every year. They spend tons of money getting the best players, all that kind of stuff. I, I knew it was like that's not me. I don't want to be that. I don't want to identify with that kind of powerhouse of a team, you know. Unless I was from Manchester, then I suppose I might. But I didn't want to identify with that. And you know, Chelsea got uh, bought by like basically a Russian mobster, and so there's Russian mob money buying players for Chelsea. And I'm like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. But Liverpool, Liverpool felt like you know pure to me or something. You know, it was like a little bit. Uh, I mean, I'm probably kidding myself, but that's what I, I I identified with this team. I kind of went in all all in on this team, and so this now uh, affects my life because I've taken on this identity, right? So last Tuesday, um, this last Tuesday, I think it was Tuesday morning. The, the transfer window, so during the summer up until the end of August, like the players being bought and sold and everybody's moving around and we're trying to figure out if we're going to have a good team, if we can challenge for the championship and all this kind of stuff. And I found out that our best player handed in a transfer request. Our best player doesn't want to play for Liverpool anymore. And um, this, this happened on Tuesday morning. I read this story and it almost ruined my day. It almost ruined my day. Like, I was having trouble concentrating. I was feeling anxious about it, right? These, I don't know any of these people, right? I don't know. But what, what happened? Like, I adopted this identity that now I identify strongly with this team, and it affects my life in that I can't concentrate on Tuesday morning when I was supposed to be writing this sermon because our best player might leave the team. And notice I say our, right? Isn't that interesting? It's really interesting. I feel good when they win. I feel bad when they lose. Um, 
And we, we, we see this. Like, we went to the first game of the Premier League season uh, I saw with Spencer and Matt. And Spencer is an Arsenal fan. And Arsenal had this kind of nail-biting game where they, 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 went, they went up and then they were down. And then, the, you know, the last-minute goal kind of won the game for them. And I saw, like, in Spencer's face, the full range of emotions that happens on Spencer's face, which is, <laughs> if you know what you're looking for, you could tell that Spencer was having all the feels during this game. All the feels. Elation, anxiety, deep depression. Like, it was all happening. It was all happening. Why? Because he's, that's his team. He's identified with that team. Um, and so, uh, that's an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? Like, our, our biggest rivals, Liverpool's biggest rivals is Manchester United, and right now, they're playing amazing. They score four goals every game. And that really chaps my hide. I don't like that. You know? Because we heard that phrase. Uh, but that, that, you know, I don't like it. So what, like, what is going on here? I, de- I identify uh, with these people. There's somebody else that uh, I was texting about. I was getting to know this guy and texting about, you know, hey, I watch the EPL. And he's like, oh, which team do you support? And that's always like this loaded question, right? Because, you know, he was going to say, he, and what he told me was, well, I'm glad you didn't say Arsenal because then we wouldn't have been able to be friends, right? Because why? He's a Tottenham fan. And Tottenham and Arsenal are both from North London, and they're sort of like, they hate each other, right? So there's these rivalries that get set up when we identify with a team. Like, I didn't go into this intending to hate Manchester United, but I do. <laughs> right? It's like the, there's this power, this principality that I'm subject to now that I'm like, like, like ugh, hate those guys, right? Um, so anyway, that, that's the dynamic uh, that I'm noticing in my life. I identify with this club. They're my team. I talk about them in the collective pronoun us, we, our. We're going to get this player. I hope we don't sell this player. There's something built into us, I think, that wants to do this, that wants to carve out an identity in contrast to others. It always ends up being in contrast to others. Liverpool versus Manchester United, Tottenham versus Arsenal, uh, Butler versus IU, or the Colts versus the Patriots. We know this, right? Um, Ohio State versus... Michigan, right? And people that root for Ohio State think Michigan fans are just the worst, right? And we think we're being objective in saying this. Like, they're just terrible. Um, Do you guys remember those old uh, commercials, Mac versus PC? I watched a few of these uh, a while back. And it's a fascinating commercial, right? Because they're identifying as a computer. Hey, I'm a Mac. And it's like a cool kind of kid, you know what I mean? Like, he's got, he's got, you know, he's dressed kind of, he's got sneakers on, and he's kind of like ironic and Cool, and then, and then who's the PC? It's like the nerd with the glasses, you know? I'm a PC, you know? I do spreadsheets really well, you know, that, that kind of thing. And what they're doing, what Apple's doing in this ad, is basically saying, like, who do you want to identify with? Who do you want to identify with here? And everybody, you know, they're counting on people identifying with the cool kid, being like, oh, I want to be like the cool kid. What do cool kids like that guy do? They buy Macs. That's what they do. Yeah? So advertisers have picked up on this, this our, our, our need to carve out an identity out of anything, right? Out, out of whatever we can find, which football team we root for, where we're from, who our family is, what kind of computer we buy, what kind of person we are, that kind of thing. Generational kind of stuff happens here as well. We're taught to craft and create and carve out this identity from nothing. The, the American dream says you're a clean slate. You're a blank, like just carve it out of thin air. You can be anything you want to be. Go ahead and just try a few things. Like try on some identities. See what you like. See what's going on there, right? Which we, we've bought into this as a message of freedom. 
yeah, we don't have to be subject to our parents. We're Generation X. You know, we see through the lies of those boomers, right? Or we're the millennials. We see this through the cynicism of those Gen Xers, right? Come on, millennials. You know what I'm talking about, <laughs> right? Or we're, we're the wise and learned generation who's built all the wealth that you millennials are, you know, now, now enjoying, you know? Like that's what, we carve out these identities um, because we're taught like that's, that's what freedom is. Freedom is you don't have to be subject to anybody telling you who you are. You can carve out your own identity. Um, but the irony is this, that in declaring our freedom from being defined by anyone else, being free to carve out our own identities, we actually have created something that we're enslaved to. We've created an anxiety about this that we're enslaved to. Because if it's up to me to carve out my own identity, holy cow, that's a crushing weight. You have to figure out who you are? And it's, it's showing up in our, in our society now. We're not sure who we are. We're not sure if we really belong to anyone else. So we carve out these identities. We told that's, that's what freedom is. And so, you know, it might be identifying as a Mac user or a PC user or this fan or that fan, but it also shows up in just like, I'm a good kid. I follow the rules. Not like those other kids who don't follow the rules. Or I'm a rebel. I don't follow the rules like those good kids. We, we, we adopt these identities. I'm competent. I'm funny. The way I belong is that I, people think I'm smart. That's what gets me in. I'm athletic, I'm a Mac, I'm a punk, I'm a geek. It's cool to be a geek now. Uh, I work harder than most. I shop at Target, not Walmart. Right? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I'm organic, I care about the environment. I drive a Prius. Not like those heathens with their gas guzzlers, you know? We adopt these identities to try to sig give signals to others about who we really are in an attempt to sort of find our people, to find this sense of belonging. But there's really no rest in it. It hasn't freed us. In, in fact, it's killing us. It's killing us. Depression and despair and anxiety are rampant. They've just been growing and growing and growing year after year. Loneliness now. There's researchers that are finding that loneliness is a public health hazard. They're finding that it, it, it predicts early death better than obesity. People who are lonely, they just don't have anybody to talk to because they've crafted this identity. There's actually a hotline in Britain I found uh, called, I can't remember what it's called, Silver, Silver Line or something like that. But this hotline in Britain that they've established to, for, for elderly people to call when they, have, when they need to contact somebody, when they just need to talk because they don't have anybody to talk to. And so people will just call and ask what time it is just to have some conversation. Or they'll call and ask how to roast a turkey because they don't have anybody to do that with. So this carving out of our own identities has actually enslaved us. It's crushing us, which is always how idolatry works out. And it can end up from there. It can even be more serious. So I've you know, talked about some of the rivalries that don't have too much of a consequence. And you know, Instead of ruining my Tuesday morning, that's the only thing that you know, my, my, uh, rival, my, my identity as a Liverpool supporter ruined my Tuesday morning. But it can be a more serious thing, as we see in the news now with a lot of these white supremacist groups, um, racism is becoming sort of this public thing that people don't secretly feel anymore, but they're sort of proud to proclaim it. And what's happening there? There's an identity that they've carved out, out of their whiteness, to say this is, this is, this 
this is what it means to be superior. And we, and we want to carve this out. The, our people, our land, blood and soil, they chant. Carving out this identity based on race. And you see where this ends. Like the, the, the gift of what's happening now is that we see where these antagonisms end in kind of the extreme case of the white supremacist. It always ends in violence, oppression, and injustice. Always ends there. Anytime we find it convenient to dehumanize the other, whether they just use a PC, <laughs> you know, or they're a Man United fan, it's the same seed that's planted in some of these racist groups. So our country was founded on this antagonism. Our entire world is built on these antagonisms. And it's rooted in this attempt to carve out an identity. Who am I? Who am I? We live in a world that encourages us to do this, to carve out our own identity out of thin air and to look within to find the truest version of ourselves. And this has given birth to a culture of rampant loneliness and anxiety and always ultimately leads to dehumanization and violence against the other, those who aren't like us. Into this chaos and confusion that I've just described, we proclaim today the good news that in our baptism, God frees us from the oppression of needing to define our own identity and gives us a new identity in community as a gift of grace, covenanting us together as one new family in Christ. One new family in Christ. So we're in the middle of this series in, uh, about baptism. Um, actually, right in the middle of it. This is August 20th. We're talking about family. And we'll talk about uh, a few more aspects over the next couple Sundays uh, of, of baptism, leading up to baptisms when we're actually going to uh, baptize several people uh, in our church on September 10th, uh, here in this room, uh, we're going to have a big tub here and uh, baptize people. It's going to be fun. Dunk them. Um, so we've been talking about baptism. Uh, baptism is the initiation into God's family through water, which represents the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a sacrament whereby we receive the seed of new life as we begin our Christian journey. That's baptism. And today we're going to talk about the family part of it. That the, the baptism is an initiation into a new family, God's family, God's worldwide multi-ethnic family of faith, which is called the church, the body of Christ. That is what we're going to talk about today. We're also going to talk a little bit about why we baptize infants. Um, so I'll just talk, we're Anglican church, and so infant baptism is part of our tradition. And I'll talk, like some of us don't come from that tradition, so that's a little bit of a question mark. I know it was for me, uh, certainly, as I came into this tradition, and so I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, so, uh, to kind of bridge the gap here, uh, I want to talk about why baptism was such a radical thing in the early church. The, the, one of the main issues that Paul is addressing, for example, in the Ephesian letter that we read, one of the main issues in the early church in the New Testament was a racial issue, uh, if not the main issue, which is, here, here's what happened. The Jews obviously were called as the people of God. Um, and, uh, you know, they had this strong sense of racial identity that's passed down from generation to generation. That's what we see in this Deuteronomy reading that we read, where the context of faith formation was the family. And so infants were brought in. They were circumcised. Males were circumcised uh, at eight days old. And then they were raised as Jewish uh, worshipers of Yahweh. They were raised that way. And so we, re we read in that Deuteronomy reading, like, here's how you do this. Like, take these words that I've given you. Give them, to their ch give them to your children. Make them prominent in your home. Like, train them to become the person that, that they are. Train them to become the person that they are. 
Um, but what happened over and over in Israel's history was that they, they, they failed to become the people of God for the world. I'm, I'm skipping tons of stuff here, but this is kind of uh, important for us to understand. Uh, Jesus Christ fulfills Israel's call. Jesus Christ is the true Israel. He comes, and in his death and resurrection, he fulfills Israel's call. He says, I will be the person, God's chosen, who does, who, who's faithful to him, which means I don't uh, fight against my enemies, which means I don't create the same kind of antagonism as the whole world lives in. Instead, I lay down my life. I die on the cross, and he's raised to life. So that, that's kind of the, what, what happened in the death and resurrection. And they're working this out in the New Testament church. Like, what does this mean? Like, we know what happened. You know, we've got all these witnesses, and we've got some ideas about what happened, but like all the New Testament letters is working out the theology. Wait, what just happened? What just happened? And so they, they begin to proclaim this gospel, and they see the Holy Spirit come on people as they proclaim the gospel, right? Which is this evidence that God is here. God is working. God is present. God has included them into the family. Now, this starts messing with the, with the Jewish believers, though. Because the people who are in the family aren't just anybody that wants to be in the family. The people who are in the family are the circumcised. The people who are in the family are the Jews. And, and if you want to become one, that's fine. We have a process for that. You can be a proselyte. But it's going to involve circumcision, right? It's going to involve circumcision. And so they start proclaiming good news to these Gentiles, these pagans, these Romans, Roman centurions, Roman jailers, people all over the Roman Empire. And what happens? As they proclaim good news, people believe, and the Holy Spirit falls. And it's messing with their racism, is what it's doing. I mean, to put it bluntly, it's messing with their sense of, wait a minute, what does it even mean to be part of the people of God now? God is accepting these Gentiles as Gentiles. What do we do now? <laughs> How does this work? How can Jews and Gentiles be one family? That's, the, that's one of the main issues that's trying to be worked out in the New Testament church. How can Jews and Gentiles be together as one family? So the inclusion of the Gentiles was this problem that they were trying to work out. And what ends up happening is, uh, is this proclamation that Paul gives in Ephesians, uh, where, where they decide, no, you know what? Uh, there shouldn't be two different groups. And Gentiles don't need to become Jews to become part of the people of God. We're all the people of God. This is actually fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies about what Israel was called to do. Okay? We're tracking? So that's what's going on here. And that's why Paul proclaims in Ephesians, I love this translation, He, Jesus, is the embodiment of our peace, sent once and for all to take down the great barrier of hatred and hostility that has divided us so that we can be one. He offered His body on the sacrificial altar to bring an end to the law's ordinances and dictations that separated Jews from the outside nations. His desire was to create in his body one new humanity from the two opposing groups, thus creating peace. Effectively, the cross becomes God's means to kill off the hostility once and for all so that he is able to reconcile them both to God in this one new body. Amen? That's great news. That's a great translation of that verse. Um, so Christ undoes every hostility that we try to create as we carve out these identities. As we carve out these identities, they always end up becoming over against another. Christ undoes all of it 
And that is what's radically, objectively true. Christ has undone it, and we can choose to live in it. And so what the New Testament church eventually uh, comes to realize is that God is pouring out his spirit on the Gentiles as they believe. And so the mark of being part, the sign of the covenant, of this new covenant that God is bringing, is no longer circumcision. That was the sign of the old covenant, and it didn't work. It didn't create the people of God as a multi-ethnic worldwide movement. So the new sign of the covenant becomes what? Baptism. Baptism becomes the new sign of the covenant. And that's the good news we're proclaiming, that in all of our attempts to carve out these identities, and it happens every day in so many different ways. As a Liverpool fan, the anxiety that shows up when our best player is going is to leave the team. Uh, it shows up in my life when I read some of the things that these, these racist groups are saying. And I think, like, how awful they are, right? I, I dehumanize the racists in my heart by saying they're just terrible people. Yeah? <laughs> you like that little sound there, Spencer? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, that's how it shows up in my life. So I need this good news as well. That in a world, we live in this world that encourages us, it urges us to carve out your own identity. We've been doing this for ages, centuries. We proclaim the good news that in our baptism, God frees us from the oppression of needing to define our own identity and gives us a new identity and community as a gift of grace, covenanting us together into one new family in Christ. So that's what this has to do with baptism. This is what's happening in baptism. What's happening is that we are being initiated into this covenant, this people. God's mission of reconciliation is to bring humans into the life of God. That's what happens in baptism. My friend Sean McCain says that baptizing infants is one of the most missional things your church can do. Because it is literally the expression of what God is doing in the world. He's bringing people into his life. That's what we do in baptism. We've been declaring this. Baptism is not primarily about my faith. Baptism is primarily about the death and the resurrection of Christ that we remember as we baptize and we bring people in to that life. We're not celebrating our faith, even though we bring our faith to the table. We're not celebrating our faith. We're celebrating the, the death and the resurrection of Christ and the new family that he's created in his body and the, new, the body of Christ that we become in baptism. In fact, one of the, some of the vows that we'll say in the baptismal liturgy talk about this, that baptism is the direct denial of every other identification that would place us over and against the other. It's the direct denial of all those things because those are essentially satanic doctrines that keep us divided from one another. And so here's what we say in the baptismal liturgy. Do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? And we all say together, I renounce them. Do you renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? I renounce them. Do you renounce all sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? I renounce them. There's a turning away from all of those identifications in baptism. A turning away. Say, this is not our solidarity. Our solidarity is in Christ, and that means now we belong to each other. We belong to each other. Matt said earlier, this isn't a place for us to come and get spiritual goods and services from religious professionals. It's not. 
This is a place where we belong to each other. It's a family. It's the body of Christ. And that's what we announce in baptism. And that's why we do baptism like in the context of a family gathering like this. And we do baptism in the context of a worship service. Because it is a sacrament. It's an encounter with the living God. So we come together to do this. And so on September 10th, when we do this together, there'll be a shorter sermon than this one, about five minutes. We'll just proclaim some good news. And then we'll invite everybody forward. And it's going to be the gospel represented, embodied in physical form. We'll all gather around the baptismal. We'll say the promises. We'll, and we'll baptize these new people into the life of God. It'll be a beautiful celebration. I'm really looking forward to it. I hope you guys can make it. <laughs> In other words, uh, you know the phrase, uh, blood is thicker than water? Um, and it's usually meant to be like, hey, the connections of family will always overtake the connections of friends and other kinds of things that are thinner. It's not true in the kingdom. The waters of baptism are thicker than blood. And they cut across those bloodlines. They cut across every other identification that we try to bring uh, to, to, the, to the world. Um, and this is what Jesus was doing in the gospel reading that we read today. Jesus was saying, hey, you know, hey, your mother and your brothers are here. They were concerned about Jesus. They were thinking he's not doing the right things. And, and the expectation was, oh, Jesus is going to be loyal to his family. That's what he's going to be doing. And Jesus rebuffs them. It's, I mean, he gets into trouble for doing this, quite honestly, like uh, rebuffing family and, and nation. And instead he says, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Isn't it you who do the, the will of my father? Later on, uh, in, in one of these passages where Jesus says this, the disciples are trying to sort out what he means. And they're saying, like, what, like what's there going to be for us? And Jesus says, look, uh, you get hundreds. And it, anybody who's left father, father or mother or fields, or any, you're not going to re- fail to receive 100 times as much, along with persecutions, but uh, 100 times as much. And I think what Jesus is saying there is, we become now brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers for each other. We belong to each other. There's this new family that we become part of, and so we belong to one another. So we live in this world that urges us to carve out your own identity out of thin air, and into that world we proclaim the good news that in our baptism, God frees us from the oppression of needing to define our own identity and instead gives us a new identity and community as a gift of grace, covenanting us together into one new family in Christ. Essentially, what God proclaims over our life is the same thing he proclaimed over Jesus in his baptism. You are my son. You are my daughter. In you, I am well pleased. I love you. That's the identity we have now. We're the beloved. We're loved. And that's it. That's good enough. Yes, I'm a white man. Yes, I'm a Liverpool supporter. But my solidarity is in Christ who loves me and gave himself for me. And that means I belong to you. And you belong to me. We belong together. We belong to each other as a family. So real quick, uh, what's up with infant baptism? I just want to say a couple things about it. I'm kind of shoehorning this in. <clears throat> but it's important for us to hear this. Um, so two things I want to say about infant baptism. One, family is the context for faith formation in the Old Testament. And it also then is the context for faith formation in the New Testament. Um, Abraham circumcised himself when God called him to circumcise. uh, When he said, here's going to be the sign of the covenant I have with you. He circumcised himself, and then what did he do? Immediately circumcised his son, right? He didn't wait for Isaac to like, well, maybe God will make a covenant with Isaac too. No, God did make a covenant with Isaac through Abraham. 
Does that make sense? Family is the, is the context for faith formation. And this is the same, it's a household faith. The same thing is true in the New Testament, but baptism is the sign of the new covenant. So the parents' faith incorporates children into the faith community, and then we raise them as Christians. Instead of raising them as Americans and hoping they convert to Christianity later. Right? You, you are discipling your child. You are. You can't help it. Your child is going to grow up learning what life is about somehow. And so we can either leave them to the whims of the culture around them that cares nothing for them, and they'll get, they'll get drafted into some identity that's going to be over against somebody else, right? So we can leave them to that and hope they, hope they convert to Christianity later. Or we can say, no, you are covenanted into this family because you're my child. I take responsibility for you. And I will raise you as a Christian. Now, to be sure, children do need to embrace faith later on as their own. There's lots of people who've been baptized as infants who have no faith. But there's lots of people who've been baptized as adults who have no faith anymore, right? So it's not the problem. Infant baptism isn't the problem. Infant baptism is the sign of this new covenant, and it's, it incorporates people into the family, which is part of the church, which is the context for faith formation. So we raise our children as Christians. Two, there is an overt connection in the New Testament to circumcision. Baptism and circumcision are connected. And that this, is, this happens throughout the New Testament um, as the sign of the new covenant. So uh, God instructs Abraham to incorporate his children at eight days old. And the same practice was then extended into the New Testament church. Baptism is this rite of uh, the new covenant whereby we bring children into the, the, the new covenant. Um, Abraham believed and then was justified and then circumcised. Same thing is true. We as parents, we believe, we're justified, and then we baptize. That's the order that always happens in the New Testament. Um, so baptism fulfills circumcision. That's another way of saying it. Paul says in Colossians, you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism. Do you see that connection? You were circumcised by Christ. How? You were buried in baptism. And so circumcision and baptism are connected like that. There's a theologian, Anglican theologian named Michael Byrd who says this, what circumcision anticipates, baptism celebrates. The covenant sign of circumcision is the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, in the Abrahamic covenant is replaced with baptism as a symbol of the new covenant. And what is more, if the new covenant is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, and if the Abrahamic covenant had a place for children, how much more does the new covenant have a place for children? Amen? should have a place for children. And it does. It's baptism. Um, and so, real quick then, what about personal faith? What do we believe about that? Uh, we believe that it's super important. It's really, really important. Baptism is not magic. It doesn't sort of automatically do something for us. It always has to be done with faith. Every sacrament does. We come to the table. It's not automatic. We come with faith. And as we come with faith, it happens. Now, that faith can be the faith of a parent on behalf of a child, incorporating them into this life and then raising them into it and praying that they will own it when it's time. Um, so we are very concerned about personal faith at the table. Um, and a lot of, a lot of the uh, movement against infant baptism has been on this issue, that it was treated as magic and therefore we shouldn't baptize children. But the problem isn't in the infant baptism. 
The problem is in the lack of discipleship, right? So let's disciple our children. Let's baptize them, and then let's disciple them. That's, that's actually what uh, we need to be doing. So we need to disciple our children well, take faith, spiritual formation seriously, uh, so that it will produce personal faith in children uh, and adults. But in, in all of this, let's remember that baptism is an act of God. It's not primarily something we're doing. It's something God is doing, welcoming children and adults into this new family. Okay? That's the good news for today. Amen? All right. So how do we respond? Um, I'm going to suggest that we uh, confess our sins together. Um, that's, that's a good way to respond. Uh, I know for me, I mentioned earlier that um, in response to some of the antagonisms we're seeing played out on Twitter and in the news and uh, in Boston and Charlottesville and all of these other places, in response to some of those things, I think sometimes our, our, our inkling or our, um, our hunch is to kind of respond with denunciations. Like, does that make sense? Like, that's wrong. And that's important. That's good to say that it's wrong. But slogans can sometimes be the way that we think we're supposed to respond with resist hate, stand up to evil, equality. Um, but I want to suggest that while those are good sentiments, they are just sentiments. And there's nothing inherently Christian about them. The way that Christians respond to what we see happening is through confession. We talk like Christians. We speak Christian, which means we confess our sins. We talk about sin. We talk about principalities and powers. That's what kind of sin racism is. Uh, we confess our sins, not just denounce others. We confess our own complicity. We confess our own privilege. We confess the ways that we've been part of the problem. We confess the ways that uh, we've tried to carve out an identity in our own lives. Our resistance is repentance and being willing to be forgiven by those that we've hurt. So I want you to think about this. Where is there antagonism for you? Where is it for you? Who are the people out there that you think, oh, those people? Who is that for you? Where is that antagonism located? Who do you find it difficult to feel empathy for? For me, it's, it's the white supremacists. That's who I find it difficult to feel empathy for. But I've been praying that God would help me to see them as humans. And God's beginning to do something in my life. I'm beginning to see them as fearful. They're afraid. They're despairing. They're lost. God's cultivating some empathy. God's beginning to break my heart for them. Where is, where is that antagonism for you? Where's that attempt to carve out your own identity in, in contrast to the other? Confess that. Maybe you just are trying to carve out an identity in a different way, as a hard worker, as a competent person, as a funny person, as a helpful person, as a smart person. Confess that too. It's another place that we're locating our identity apart from our baptism. And then uh, we're going to use this prayer together to affirm our baptismal identity as God's beloved children in Christ. So let's be quiet for a little while and just wait for the Lord to bring to mind what we need to confess.
Let's pray together using the prayer in your booklet uh, to confess those places that we're trying to carve out our own identity. I'll start. Loving Father, I confess that I try to carve out my identity in my competence and in my helpfulness to others. I lay that down today and ask you to give me rest in my baptismal identity as your beloved son. Lord, in your mercy.